Mi chiamo Johnny Gravino ed è un piacere essere con voi questa mattina. You all got that, right? I'm so thankful. I just wanted to make sure you knew I was the real thing. Rick talked about me being Canadian and so I am. But um, I have an Italian heart and um, just so thankful to be here and it's a privilege. Um, very humbled from just the way you have embraced us as a church And Rick is so right. We love your church. And we're so grateful for your investment as well in uh, sending a part of your church over the years to uh, encourage us in the ministry and especially this last fall, late fall, when you guys came, as, as Rick said, uh, with Chris and Jill and the family and Bob and Kathy and, of course, Rick. And uh, it meant so much to our church. Um, you know, the... The, the language barrier suddenly disappeared and um, they were hugging us in an Italian way and we were hugging them and uh, it was just such great fellowship. And um, you are more important to us in, 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 you are important to us in many ways than, uh, than you can believe. And uh, uh, just from your faithfulness, uh, we constantly look to models and mature churches that we can follow as they follow Christ. And uh, uh, that is uh, such a, a great encouragement for us, and especially for men like Simone. You've met Sebastian already. He's married now, uh, so he's, he's, in, he's on sabbatical leave. No, just kidding. He's at home taking care of the church and uh, learning English, and so we're looking forward to what the Lord has for him in the future And uh, this is Simone's first time in America. And so the Lord is gracious in giving us some fruit of faithful and godly men. And, and I just want to thank Rick. Um, I uh, certainly don't want to embarrass him, but uh, to say that I stand on his shoulders is, is I mean, I wouldn't even go there. I'm, I'm behind. And um, he is also so important uh, to me As I know, he is infinitely important to you, but he is important to me because young uh, men like myself growing in ministry need models, mature models, pastoral models. And so though there's a distance, um, and perhaps he doesn't know it, but I observe his life. I observe his ministry. I observe his heart. And everything he shares with me is a pearl of wisdom. And so I'm thankful for the pastoral team here. I If I wasn't serving in Italy, I would wish only I could be an, a pastor here, maybe even a janitor. And so I'm so grateful. This morning, I would just like to encourage your heart uh, with a few principles on worship uh, based on uh, a familiar text, and I hope a text that will encourage you uh, from John chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at the worship of Jesus the Messiah and Christ Worship as it should be. And we're going to be looking at two principles that our text gives us for worship as it should be. This morning, we'll be looking specifically at the anointing of Jesus by Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus in John chapter 12. Within the narrative of John's gospel, we, we reach a peak as we follow the flow of the story. It is near the hour. This is the hour of the Lord's death, death by crucifixion. This is the hour for which God the Father sent him, God the Son, the God-man, God incarnate, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just prior to this hour, 
the storyline works its way to this apex. John provides us with a very unique and intimate moment, a witness of true worship and devotion to Christ. He will be rejected by the world, as we know, by all. His own, the Jews and the nation of Israel, have not received his coming to them and are on the brink of totally denying him. At the close of this very chapter, John will write, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, John 12, 37. In the midst of this infinitely trying drama, John gives us a glimpse of the worship of those who have not rejected him. It is the devotion of the many that have received him and it is worship that the Father has designed in order to glorify the Son. It is not about His own, but about Christ. The Father will use the worship of His own to exalt Christ, the Son, to accomplish His will in and through Christ. Jesus will be worshipped as the Messiah in Christ. This is another witness according to John's theme of witness as he develops in his gospel. Jesus will be worshipped as the Messiah in Christ. John will use the story to add further confirmation to his theme that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing the reader may have life in his name, John's purpose in John 20, 31. This is devotion. As we will see, the Son willingly receives Mary's worship. In fact, he approves. Jesus will not only receive Mary's worship, but will rebuke whomever tries to interfere with that worship, even if that interference comes from one of his very own disciples. Our text will, in essence, highlight two essential principles of this worship, true worship, Two essential principles of true worship, the kind both the Father and the Son, and by application, the Spirit, approve of. The kind of worship we're talking about is that which is founded on the principles of, please listen, preservation and priority. Preservation and priority. In John chapter 12, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 and 8. And we will see true worship as defined by the principles of preservation and priority. What do these principles mean? True worship, we could say, is that whereby the worshiper preserves himself. That is to say he keeps himself pure and undefiled, ready at all times, continuously offering, presenting himself to his Lord for worship. There is a preparation to worship. It is intentional. Jesus will say of Mary's worship that she kept it. She kept it so that she may keep it, the pound of costly perfume. Verse 7. True worship along these lines is also that worship which is elevated to a priority. Priority above all else, even above the most needy and necessary matters of life. Jesus will also remark of Mary's worship that it had precedence over even the most sincere and urgent of earthly needs, the poor. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me, verse 8. 
Both principles play out in the witness and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ in John's gospel narrative. As the story of the Messiah and Christ progressively unfolds, Christ the King has come to die. And the reader is drawn into an ever greater understanding of the worship expected of his sheep in light of the shepherd's death for his sheep. How does your worship compare this morning? How does your worship compare this morning? What should be the pattern and practice of your worship today? Are you keeping yourself? Is this your priority? Please follow along with me as we read our text in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, and we'll specifically focus on the last two verses, 7 and 8. John writes, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he has, as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We have the unique privilege this morning of listening we could say, to the right interpretation of worship. Thanks to John's selective and inspired chronicle of Mary's act of devotion towards Christ, we are given wonderful insight into this anointing of Jesus, this worship fundamentally, and its fundamental significance. Every part of this historical event is important, but if we were to give it the proper emphasis, we would have to clearly say that verses 7 and 8 are it. Though Mary's tremendous act of devotion is what gives this story life, it is ultimately not the act itself that is of utmost importance. It is the narrative. It is Jesus' own words. Jesus' thoughts concerning this act at the end of the story. That is what is of utmost importance. Hence, this morning, rather than focus on the whole story, I simply wish to concentrate on its meaning as explained in our text in verses 7 and 8. The Lord deserves to be worshipped. The Lord expects to be worshipped by those who believe, those who keep themselves. They preserve, prepare themselves. Those who prioritize themselves. They make worship a priority even in the midst even in the midst of his own death facing impending death even before a betrayer and a betrayal that awaits the lord will be worshiped by his own nothing will impede this the circumstances are secondary the threats risks costs and dangers are secondary all in life is second with respect to the worship that is due him, with the worship that, by application, you 
and I owe him. Circumstances are always secondary. The world is in many ways shut out of this event. There are only a few gathered at this intimate supper, the family of Lazarus and Jesus and Judas, with possibly all of the twelve, though we are not told that in the story. Matthew 26 and Mark 14, the related texts of this account, give a picture of many more gathered at this dinner, though we don't know for sure. In our passage in John, nonetheless, the focus is on just a few. An intimate setting. He will shortly be rejected by the entire world, but in the meantime... He meets with his own, with one believer, a woman, to be worshipped and to present to us the model of worship that he so desires. The crowds and religious leaders are out of the picture for the moment. Circumstances, though, not, are not necessarily an impediment to worship. Rather, they further enhance it. Jesus, in our text, will be going to the cross soon. Mary's devotion is for the day of his burial, verse 7. The road to the cross makes this worship all the sweeter, so to speak. All worship in this regard is in light of the cross. It is, we can say, cross-centered. It is because of the cross. It has sacrifice in mind. Christ's sacrifice, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, that only sacrifice by the only Savior and Lord Jesus Christ that gives life, eternal life to all those who believe, who give themselves to true worship by virtue of Christ's offering himself to the Father as the ultimate kind of worship. Interestingly enough, worship and suffering go hand in hand. I don't know if you've realized that. There is a greater weight to our worship when it is offered in the context of sacrifice and suffering. It's better when it's sacrificial, so to speak. Suffering makes worship weighty by God's design. It is said of Luther that he believed the study of theology was most effective in the context of suffering and trials. Prayer, meditation, and suffering were Luther's three keys to knowing God and studying theology. Of the three, suffering was God's most potent tool at growing his servants, rendering them more mindful of their mere mortality and of their utter dependence on God, upon God. Christ, trials were a prerequisite for Luther to the study of theology. The Lord prepares these, orchestrates these, so that worship is weighty, is true. Christ is on the road to the cross in our passage by divine design. He will suffer, and Mary's worship will honor this sacrifice. Her act of devotion has the aroma of suffering and sacrifice, which equals worship, we could say. We worship the man of sorrows who was familiar with suffering himself. He who bore the sins of all those who believe as a substitute on the cross. This is then the fount of worship, the goal of worship, and the attitude of worship. The worshiper humbles himself before his suffering Savior and Lord who gave himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. With these thoughts in mind, let's look at the two principles that emerge from our text and story. True worship consists, we said, of preservation, we could say of preparation, where the worshiper 
keeps himself, prepares himself for his Lord, sanctifies himself. There is a preparation behind it, a keeping of oneself. Verse 7 highlights, as we said, Jesus' response to Mary's act of worship. What does the Lord think of what Mary has done? We know the answer. Again, it's not to be missed. Mary has the unique, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, we could say, to hear the Lord's thoughts concerning her act of devotion to him. Will Jesus approve or disapprove of this act? Just think, we could say by application, what does the Lord think of your worship this morning? Does he approve or does he disapprove? Will he agree with Judas, who just prior in verse 6 rebuked Mary for having poured out, wasted this costly oil that could have been sold and the money used to feed the poor? Jesus' reply is also very noteworthy because it is directed at Judas and not Mary. Jesus reproves Judas. He defends Mary. He is for Mary. The Lord is always for true worshipers, never against them. True worship, devotion, that wholeheartedly and sacrificially gives itself totally to the Lord is never viewed by Him as a waste. No matter what the cost, be encouraged to go forward in your worship. Sometimes some of us begin like Mary and end like Judas in our worship. We begin with wholehearted devotion, and then as the cost gets greater, we suddenly become pragmatic and consider the waste, perhaps. Consider the finances. Judas, on the other hand, is not a true worshiper. He is a traitor, verse 4. He will betray the Lord. He is about to betray him. He is a thief, verse 6. There is a clear contrast between Mary and Judas. John prepares the reader to understand the heart of a traitor, a thief. This is the heart of someone who is not a true worshiper. The interaction between Jesus and Judas is so interesting here. He has chosen him Along with all the 12, he has called him into ministry, John 6. John 12, once again, we see him mentioned, though, in spite of being among the 12, mentioned repeatedly as the one who will betray Jesus. John 13, in the next chapter, John will develop this all the more, this greater theme and the depth of Judas's wickedness. And yet, how everything is under the sovereign purpose of God. Judas has been prophesied. God has placed Judas there for a reason. There is, once again, the combination of worship and even evil. God will use both to further exalt his son. And though Mary is worshiping Jesus, Judas's presence there represents the fact that Jesus will soon die, betrayed at the hands of an evildoer, and yet all of it being a part of the Father's sovereign will. Matthew and Mark recount the fact that the disciples themselves reprove Mary. They are indignant. And so the disciples in this sense seem to be so obtuse 
so ignorant of the reality, almost siding with one who betrays and yet not Mary. Not Mary. What is the goal of Mary's worship then? It is so that she may keep it for the day of Jesus' burial, according to the rest of verse 7. So that Mary may keep. The term keep means guard, preserve, hold on to, pay attention to. Notice it is not the cost of the oil or perfume that impresses Jesus or renders Mary's action noteworthy. It's not the cost or the value of the object. What is noteworthy for Jesus? Judas is definitely attracted to the cost, the worth of the perfume. His eye is on the material worth. He is very pragmatic, as we said. Jesus, instead, is struck, we could say, by the preservation. That is, by what has been saved. In other words, kept until now. It's not about material savings either. It's about the heart. This is what Jesus is looking at. Materialistically speaking, Mary has greatly erred, we could say. She's, in fact, wasted very expensive oil, perfume. Spiritually speaking, Mary has infinitely gained. The perfume was no doubt costly of significant worth, even for a probably wealthy family like that of Lazarus. The worth of the object, then, is not to be underestimated. The monetary sacrifice in this worship is enormous. On the other hand, it is not the point. What you give, in essence, is not the point. It's why you're giving, how you're giving, giving all of yourself, cost what may. The Lord tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7 that he does not see as man sees. It's not the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Mary preserves herself for the worship of Christ by her heart attitude and outward manifestation of that attitude. Through the way she kept the perfume, she's meditating, she's considering, she's preparing, she's sanctifying herself. She's watchful with regards to her own life, always, regularly, battling, we could say. By application, Mary held on to it until the proper moment, the opportune moment, the moment that had finally reached her, i.e., the Lord, we could say, and Savior standing before her, wanting, desiring to be honored. The costly perfume for Mary was just an instrument to assist her in further giving herself, consecrating herself to her Lord. Mary hurried. Mary was diligent with haste and urgency is the sense, and with no personal interest of her own, but simply and sincerely devoted to Jesus. With eyes fixed on Jesus, she preserved and poured her perfume at the most providential of hours. When is she doing this? It's just as any casual day. He is about to perform the ultimate sacrifice. And she is honoring him just before that, recognizing the ultimate sacrifice. That is the context of her worship, so rich, so profound. 
The act itself, the keeping of the perfume, also has with it an intrinsic element of probability. In other words, the keeping of the perfume is based on Mary's preparation. She reflects, she ponders, as we said, on all her resources. Everything is available. Nothing is excluded from this type of worship. All your life is being asked for. Every resource is being asked for. Everything available to her, even the material objects of significant value, like a unique and costly perfume. Mary meditates in her heart the probability, the opportunity, that opportune moment, that occasion when she will be able to use her resources for the Lord, expend herself fully with everything she literally and physically has for Jesus. Mary, in this regard, has not solely poured out and spent an expensive perfume on Jesus, but she's done what? She spent herself, her life, her entire life on Jesus, all her life, mind, soul, heart, and strength, constantly devoted and committed, kept, preserved to and for the worship of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul teaches principles on giving, giving financially in this regard. Giving financially to the work of the Lord, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Worship in this sense is not distinct. So interesting. It is not distinct nor separated, in other words, from the heart and life of a person. Giving monetarily is not separated from Giving one's heart spiritually, devotionally, fully. It, the two are intimately linked. In other words, a person's heart is linked, if I can say pragmatically, to their wallet and financial resources as well. It is one complete package. It is a life. In addition, worship is premeditated and predetermined, prepared based on a foundational principle of wanting to be kept, wanting to preserve oneself, wanting to be holy before one's Lord at all times and ready for that final encounter in glory with the Lord. Prepared based on preserving oneself for Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of how intentional a family can be in its worship, how intentional single adults can be in their worship for Jesus Christ. It is intentional constantly consecrating oneself. The act is not impulsive nor casual, irregular, or haphazard. So sad to see in our own context in Italy, believers that come from a Catholic background, in their giving, oftentimes we hear coins and dimes falling into the offering. And that's not to be judgmental. That's just the recognition of a worshiper that has not prepared for that giving. They sift through their pockets, remembering that it's the offering, so to speak. Worship is premeditated. The act is not impulsive. This is Mary. Here we have a description of Mary in our text. This is what strikes Jesus. This is the heart that the Lord approves. Mary makes haste to preserve, keep the perfume for a more opportune moment, a moment of pure and true worship. 
In that haste and attention given to worship, Mary is used of God in an unfathomable way. Her worship brings fruit like no other in that moment. And I might add, beyond, including in our era. Why? Who remembers this worship? Who remembers it? Well, the Lord remembers it, and the Lord calls his church of all time to remember it. In fact, that's what he says in this story. Matthew recounts that Mary's worship, what does he say about Mary's worship? No one will ever forget Mary's worship. This is exactly what Jesus says at the end of this story in Matthew. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew 26, 13. Notice Mary does better than Jesus' own disciples. She honored the Lord before he, before he gave himself as the propitiatory sacrifice for sin and sinners. The disciples, in fact, says Matthew, were indignant, as we said. They still haven't understood. They will understand. Mary, in this respect, shames the disciples themselves. They don't get it as well, at least not for now. The true worship consists of preservation. And finally, our second principle, verse 8, true worship consists of priority. We come to verse 8 where we have a contrast this is coming off of the thought just expressed by Jesus in verse 7. In essence, there is a comparison made between who? Between Jesus and the poor. And that's such a, a tension even now within our own contemporary church, social activism and the gospel. And we, we struggle at that. And there's a healthy tension in many ways. But notice our text. Jesus says, for the poor, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There are two present tenses there, we could say. It's about priority. On the one hand, there is Jesus continuing, present. On the other hand, there is the poor continuing. They are present. But it's about priority. That resolves the tension, so to speak. The poor will always be here. Jesus will not always be here. This is an Old Testament expression recalling the need for Israel, God's people, to be generous towards the poor and help them. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. It is good. It is necessary. The Lord commands generosity and help. The help of the poor. While this is certainly true, we are also called to discern the times and recognize our priorities. Your social activism, though good, must be based on discernment and priority. It must not outweigh the concern for the understanding of the Word and for the growth of the body in Christ for worship spiritual worship of Christ and growth in his likeness. In our context, historical context, Jesus is about to depart from the world and his disciples. John 12, John 13 will say this. In chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, Jesus will say to the crowds gathered, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. People are called to prepare themselves so that the darkness does not fully, eternally, eternally overtake them. For the believer, the true worshiper, this means he must seize the day. This is your opportunity. You stand before an incredible church. You are part of an incredible body that Italian believers, we could say, could only are jealous in a healthy way. Well then, seize the day. Seize the day. Seize the day. Don't waste your opportunities for this worship. Before it's too late, our times are getting progressively and rapidly more wicked. The freedoms we have enjoyed thus far in preaching and proclaiming the gospel will come to an end. And you know this better than we right now. The Lord exhorts us, his sheep, through this text to seize the opportunity and hold to the priority of our worship of him, regardless of the costs and of the times. Worship him while we still have the word and the light, in that sense, in our midst. Mary is in many ways apparently sensitive to her times, even though nothing in the text tells us explicitly that she is aware of Jesus' impending death on the cross. She is acting in a way that shows more than she knows. She does, however, demonstrate much maturity and awareness with respect to her faith and her Lord. This is more so than Judas, but also more than Jesus' own disciples. More than even the crowds and the religious leaders gathered in verses 9 to 11 at the end of our passage. And of course we know that this is worship that is not Mary's merit. But the Lord has orchestrated all of this so that Mary can model this for all others to come. This is what the Lord does and that's why we focus, if we can, on our own passage because Mary is not the hero of this story. It is Jesus Christ. It is Christ. Mary's worship honors the Lord, but it's just a symbol, we could say, minor compared to the ultimate sacrifice. Who will honor God, the Son, in only in the only way the Son can honor the Father, by dying as a substitute for all those who believe in Him, for sinners like you and I. How is your worship this morning? We began with that question. Are you preserving yourself, preparing yourself, keeping yourself? Are you living with this priority in mind, resolute and fixed above anything else? And using all else in your life for this purpose, true worship to Christ. This is worship that cannot deceive the Lord if you're not worshiping this way. He looks upon the heart. He knows the heart. This is worship that will be manifested if you're not worshiping in this way. In other words, at a certain point, it will come out. 
and you will find yourself responding like Judas in the midst of your body. Though your words will profess an attitude of worship, and though you may sit in a congregation like this, and unbeknownst to anyone, your actions will eventually reveal a well that is dry. You have not been at the Savior's feet like Mary. Times are rapidly declining. The church continues to be called to this high standard of worship. And it is not of ourselves, but it calls for a humble and dependent attitude, a broken and weighty attitude before our Lord, crying out to be sanctified and used in his likeness as a living sacrifice, Paul will say in Romans 12. Times are decadent and depraved, and the decadence and depravity will increasingly grow and attempt to suffocate us out, you out, we overseas in Italy. On the other hand, this is the only kind of life and practice witness that will help sinners in an increasingly darker world. The darker it gets, the more effective true worship will be as salt and light to save the lost and to sanctify the saved, being saved. You want to be involved in social activism? You want to be effective in your community? Worship like this. Worship like this. Give yourself more to this kind of worship, to the authority and preaching of the word, to the pastoral shepherding, and you will be effective in your community. Two principles for worship as Jesus goes on the road to the cross and stops in Bethany, preservation and priority. Let's pray.